and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Amanda Ripley is a New York Times bestselling author. She's an investigative journalist, and she's the host of the Slate podcast, How To, which is really a, a great podcast. I highly recommend you check it out. She's also the co-founder of Good Conflict, a company that creates workshops and original content to help people get smarter about how they fight, how they deal with conflict. So this conversation is going to obviously dive deep into high conflict, good conflict. You'll hear about those distinctions that Amanda makes. And we actually talk a little bit about her own conflict within the world of journalism. She has spent her career trying to make sense of complicated human mysteries, from how people get out of dysfunctional conflicts to how countries educate virtually all their kids to think for themselves. So we get deep into our educational system in the U.S. and also abroad. Her most recent book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. 
and that was actually published in 2021. So it is pretty fresh. Highly recommend you check that book out as well. Her previous books include The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why, which was published in 15 countries and actually turned into a PBS documentary. And her other book was The Smartest Kids in the World, which is what I mentioned earlier. We really will spend a lot of time thinking and talking about how we can raise our kids to thrive and how we can raise our kids to be as competent and smart and wise as possible. In her books and magazine writing, Amanda combines storytelling, which we also share in this conversation, with data. And you'll learn quickly that Amanda loves to look at the research. So she will cite research that she has found along her journey as well. Throughout her work, she follows people who have been through some kind of transformation, including the survivors of hurricanes and plane crashes, American teenagers who have experienced high school in other countries, and politicians and gang members who were bewitched by toxic conflicts and managed to break free. We actually do discuss politics in this in this conversation, and it's interesting because both of us are based in Washington, D.C., so when you live in Washington, D.C., politics does tend to come up. And so we get into it a little bit on that front as well. For The Atlantic Magazine and other outlets, she's written feature stories on how journalists could do a better job. We talk a lot about journalism and how they could do a better job covering controversy in an age of outrage and on the least politically prejudiced town in America and on the strange history of state laws and that punish teenagers for acting like teenagers. So this is a wide ranging conversation. I think at the core of it, we talk about Amanda's curiosity and what she's most interested in, where she's been, where she's going, where she is today and how conflict arises for each of us. So I know you're going to love Amanda. She is somebody who knows her stuff through and through, but also doesn't mince words on what she believes in and, and what she's curious about. So here is Amanda Ripley. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, we've had some interesting chats, so I'm excited to fire up the microphones and chat a little bit more and, and share some of our conversations that we've had previously. But where I thought we'd start is uh, on your relationship with journalism and news. And and obviously, you, you've written you know, and, and write for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Politico. Like you're, you're in this world where you're reporting and you're researching and you're sharing. Um, but there's also this other side of our media that is complicated. And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out, all right, how do we consume our, our information? And we're constantly thinking about that. At least I am. How do you think about consuming media compared to how you're producing media and how do you think of it as a consumer and also as a producer? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, Brian. It's good to see you again. And I'm, I, I think, I've really gone through a very weird uh, journey on news consumption, and uh, it hasn't always been pretty. But basically, you know, six or seven years ago, I started noticing that my normal news diet was leaving me really depleted. So I, you know, as a journalist for 20 years, I would read a lot of news, and I would read it often at breakfast before I even began the day. And I always enjoyed it. I mean, I always thought it was like such a racket, such a caper that I could like read three newspapers and call it work, you know. <laughs> and it made me feel like I was part of a bigger conversation, and it made me curious. And then it slowly just started getting under my skin for a bunch of reasons um, that it was hard to identify at the time. But I found that after I would do that, and you know, with breakfast, I was like, 
kind of depleted and I didn't have the energy to go do the writing and reporting I needed to do, ironically, for my job in the news media. And so I, sh I kept shifting it. So I would wait until after lunch to read the news or I would wait until the evening and then I would dose it like an opioid, you know, not too much and not too... Uh, not at the wrong times of the day, not when you're driving, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And so uh, I mostly felt really embarrassed about this because I'd always covered, you know, crime and terrorism and disasters. And, you know, it felt like I'd gone soft. And then slowly I started hearing from other journalist friends who were doing the same thing, who were really struggling um, to read the news and still have enough energy, hope and agency to kind of carry on with their day. And then the Reuters Institute did this survey that found that four out of every 10 Americans is sometimes or often actively avoiding contact with the news. And I started to think at that point, okay, maybe this isn't just me. And maybe there is another way to decide what news is and how to frame it and deliver it. So I got very obsessed with that a couple of years ago and I've been really trying to learn from people who study what humans need, you know, to get things done, to make decisions, to thrive in the modern world. And there's a few things that are just clearly missing from the way journalism has historically been done, but that we need, right, to turn anger into action or frustration into movement and progress. So um, I think we're a little bit stuck in an old way of deciding what is the news and how to deliver it. Um, but I'm excited to kind of be experimenting with, with other journalists in new ways to do that. So, so yeah, that's my tortured explanation for, <laughs> and I, and I, this summer I confessed all this in a Washington Post essay, um, and just got a huge amount of response that was 99% validating and people saying, oh my gosh, thank you for saying this. I'm a reporter too. I feel the same way. Uh, but I didn't know, you know, I thought it was just me. So that's been cool. What are you doing? What are you doing to make sure that you're still getting the information that makes you an informed citizen uh, yeah. and a thoughtful human and also good at your job? Uh, what, do you, what, what are you doing? Yeah, well, uh, one caveat is that I no longer cover like a daily beat. So I'm very fortunate in that sense that I don't need to be keeping abreast of every little twist and turn. <laughs> of the news. Um, but one thing I've done is I absolutely do not ever watch TV news. And there's just a ton of research on this. Unfortunately, I mean, there are some exceptions to this, but in general, TV news, because it's video, right, it's much more salient, much more emotionally manipulative. Um, and it just doesn't tend to leave you more informed on average. But we know that the more, say, coverage you watch of, you know, mass casualty events, the more likely you are to suffer from PTSD, even more likely than people who actually lost someone in that event. So uh, it's kind of crazy. It's especially true for kids. So anyone who's listening who has kids, you just you really do not want to have the TV on with the news because kids have no way to process this information and to understand that footage you see of some terrible thing happening replayed over and over and over doesn't mean it's happening over and over and over, right? Um, so yeah, TV news is out the window. And then um, I usually try not to read news in the morning because again, that's when I'm most productive. <laughs> so I will read a book, I'll, like a book related to my work. I'll read like a chapter of a book that I'm trying to 
work my way through on, you know, research into human behavior and that kind of thing. Um, and then in the like afternoon evening, I will allow myself to look at the Washington Post or the New York Times. And then I listen to more news than I ever did before. I don't, do you, do you listen to any of your news these days, like on podcasts or radio? I pretty much listen to podcasts. I, you know, I'm thinking about how I consume news. I'm big on Twitter. So I, mm-hmm. I definitely use that as like a filter and then we'll click, click on articles and consume that way. But it's yeah. interesting on Twitter. There are people that I follow that really rile me up and I can feel like emotional <laughs> reactions yeah. and responses to. And I've gone back and forth as to whether to unfollow them or not. And I decided to stay with it. But I, I wrestle with that. Like, do I yeah. do I continue to follow them even though I disagree with how they see the world? Or right. um, do I follow them and deal with some of the hijacking that can occur from me digesting their content? And therein lies conflict, which is an interesting piece. As, as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing like your conflict internally wrestling with do I avoid the news? Right. Do I listen to it? Do I read it? Do I listen to read it on my own terms at a certain time of day? Like I yeah. hear all this conflict and and here you wrote a book on conflict. So I'm yeah. curious how you think about the word conflict as it relates to your huh. desire to. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't, you'd think I would have made that connection, but no. Um, so yeah, it's true. There is a lot of internal conflict. Um, there because part of my identity is wanting to be informed right like a lot of people i want to you know feel like i'm doing my duty as a citizen and also as a journalist obviously um and so yeah i feel conflicted about it and i also know enough about how the news is made so to speak that you know i know it is a hall of mirrors. Like it's just a sliver of what's happening. And I'm frequently frustrated because I do want to be informed and the news is not giving me what I want. Like I have really struggled to find an outlet where I feel like, okay, I really have a sense of what's going on here. Um, And so that's what I've been trying to figure out is like, if we were to, you know, go uh, start a new civilization on Mars and start journalism from scratch, what would that look like? You know, what, what would we do differently? And um, Amanda, what would it look like? Yeah. So what I I ended up doing was spending the last year really talking, interviewing people and learning from people who just think about this question of, you know, what do humans need to get up in the morning and thrive in an information environment that's just saturated, right? Where the news is aerosolized, like you can't avoid it. Um, And there's a bunch of things they told me that were totally fascinating, but if I distilled it all down, it seemed like there were three things that we really know humans need. And we've only known this in the past few decades, right? But three things we know humans need almost biologically that are just missing from most reporting. Now they're out in the world, like they should be in the stories, but they're typically not just because of the conventions of, of journalism. So those three things are hope, agency, and dignity. And those sound very like woo woo, but in fact, there's just a ton of research that hope is, you know, as David Bornstein, my journalism colleague says, hope is like water. You know, you need to have something to believe in. And it's weird that it's so hard for journalists to understand this, but people need to have a sense of possibility, not, not false hope, right, that you're inventing, but hope based on, 
good reporting. Um, because otherwise, you know, we see this over and over again with climate change coverage and other things that, you know, if it feels like there is no hope, then the only rational response is to tune out and do nothing and be depressed. I mean, so you then have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, psychology, as I was listening to you, I was talking to a client right before we started recording this, and we were talking about, you know, when you dip so far below the line and you can't see anything, you can't take any action. That's where depression lives. Despair is where it lives. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, yeah, you mentioned earlier, you know how the news is made. Why aren't they embedding in psychological wellness into the storytelling, into the reporting? I love how you said that. Wouldn't that be great? Um, So there's a couple places that are, but they're few and far between. I mean, I think part of a lot of it is obviously just, you know, the financial pressures to get your attention. The easiest way to do that is to, you know, fear and outrage, right? But I actually think that's not the whole explanation. And and many people disagree with me on this. But I think a lot of it is just the traditions and conventions and sort of norms of journalists, especially at the national level. I think it's a little a little better sometimes at the local level. But uh, at the national level, the stories that get attention from other journalists, they get attention on social media that make you feel like you matter and are having impact in the world are typically accountability stories, um, stories where you're trying to expose wrongdoing or graft, um, stories where you are trying to catch a politician in some kind of hypocrisy or goof. Um, and, And those kinds of stories, while important, in real life, they're probably 5% of the world, right? Like they're not, they're not 95% of what's happening in your, in any given town, but we, the ego is very involved in the newsroom, right? In these decisions. And so speaking for myself, you know, I spent most of my career, I was on staff at Time Magazine and, and wrote for other places, really driven by that same culture where it was like, you know, I need to find the most shocking statistics, the most compelling, riveting, alarmist quotes. And um, that is what is going to get me space in the magazine. And that's what's going to be, that's what, if you look at, you know, where do the journalism awards go, right? They're all to those like really long stories that very few people read, but, um, you know, are kind of exposing some kind of terrible injustice, right? Um, And again, those are important stories, but that's just like a sliver of the world um, because any story I've ever done, whether it's in, you know, India or Colombia or Washington, D.C., no matter how grim, and I've done some really awful, awful, I've covered some awful things, there are glimmers of hope, agency, and dignity, and they just didn't make it into the story, I'm sad to say. Yeah. I'm I'm like wondering what it's like to be a journalist and knowing like that's that's the north star is to find something awful and look you've written about you, you mentioned earlier terrorism disasters um you know we're going to talk more about conflict but um you know who survives when we're going through unthinkable disastrous situations and so as a journalist what is can you talk about for those that are not in your shoes or your colleagues' shoes, 
what is it like? Let's go to the beat. Cause you mentioned like you're not on the beat anymore, but someone that, whose job it is every day or someone who's doing a long form story on, on some awful genocide or, or something terrible that's going on a war or whatever it might be. Can you talk about what it's like for those people and um, the, the human elements of being in, in their shoes? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple things that probably, I don't know, but probably most people aren't aware of um, that might be useful here because you know, most journalists, I mean, they're just people, right? They're just trying to do their job, you know, see their kids at night. Like it's, it's, it's easy to demonize the media. And so it's also easy to generalize when in fact there's like huge differences, right? From place to place. But I will say a big piece of it, like competitive pressure is very strong. And when I say that, it sounds like it's uh, all legitimate. Like I, you know, when I was at Time Magazine, we were always competing with Newsweek, right? Um, and it was like very intense. But again, a lot of that is just ego. Like it's not, you know, we had 4 million subscribers when I was there back in the day. And, you know, there's very few people who were buying the magazine on the newsstand and then deciding between Newsweek's cover and Times cover. But a huge amount of mental energy of the editors went to deciding the cover just to beat Newsweek, right? So I don't know if this, I mean, it's kind of like sports, right? Like there's a thing for, where humans get very um, groupish, right? And so the New York Times and the Washington Post, there's a couple of times I was on a pool reporting assignment where I'm following around Obama or someone who has a lot of attention on him and they create like a pool of people. So there'll be like somebody from Times, somebody from Vogue, somebody from GW, and then someone from the New York Times and the Washington Post and Fox or whatever. And the New York Times and Washington Post reporters, it was like unbelievable. I mean, these, these places are, they're so incredibly fixated on each other, right? On not letting the other one get something that they didn't get. And it's just kind of crazy when you step back from it. Um, because, you know, often, like multiple times a year, we would end up with a time with the same cover as Newsweek in any given week. And it's like, does that like does that helping the world like the same story, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? same subject? Um, so anyway, I just don't think you can underappreciate the the drive of people trying to seek status, and it's it's much more powerful than just quote unquote trying to sell newspapers. It's interesting as I hear you say, does that really help? It speaks to perhaps why you got into this work. Um, like, can you talk a little bit about why you even decided to go down this path of, of research, writing, uh, discovering and, and sharing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think one thing I've had to admit to myself, and it's taken me a long time to come to this, is that some of the reasons I went into this were not great. You know, some of them were like, I wanted to be heard, you know, in my own life for various reasons as a kid, I didn't really feel heard. I didn't really feel like I could, uh, you know, have any impact in the world. And then journalism comes around, you write a story, boom, it's like, a, you can see it, you can hold it in your hands at the time, you know, and you feel like you matter, you know, and we all want that. So I don't mean to suggest that there was something like horribly dysfunctional about that. But I don't think I ever was explicit about it. Um, as time has gone on, I've gotten older, other things, I don't need that as much, right? And so over time, I've slowly started 
just for my own sanity, but also because I think it's more interesting to pursue stories that are less about ego and more about hope, agency, and dignity. So my first book was following people who survived disasters to learn, like, what do you wish you had known? You know, like, what are we getting wrong here in the planning to prevent, you know, mass casualty events? And that was fascinating. And it was just a different way of covering that beat that was just really much more, you know, healthy uh, for me personally and for the reader, I think. And then with education, same thing. Like I just got to a point where it was so depressing and frustrating that I ended up just doing a book on kids who, American kids who spent a year studying uh, in public high schools in other countries where they have a much stronger education system just to see, like, what did you notice? Like, what was different? You know, what could we learn? So that's a, what I now know as a solution story, which I didn't even know that was a thing at the time. Um, but it just kind of breathes light. Like, it's like you suddenly can feel like, oh, there's space here, you know? When you read a story about a kid from, you know, the Bronx in South Korea and what's what she misses about America, what she loves about Korea, what she wishes her American high school did differently it's just really interesting and it gives you a sense of possibility, which is what's usually missing. It's interesting when I think about kids and what they want to be when they grow up, you might say a lawyer, a doctor, an athlete, a politician, a musician, an actor, maybe a psychologist. Right. And my conversations with people in all of those industries, they get into it for one thing. And then when they're in it, it morphs into something else. And Hmm. so take an athlete, they get into sports because it's fun. And then if they're a professional, it becomes something very different. Um, And same with a musician, like they don't get into music. Maybe some get in it because they want to be a rock star one day and be famous. But, you know, most of the time people start playing the guitar because they're just curious or their mom or dad or whoever it is says, hey, why don't you try playing this Mm. instrument? Right. And actors the same way. But I think of the word jaded, like once we get into an ecosystem, we can easily become jaded or, or fall in love with parts of that industry that weren't the reason we got into it. And that might be okay. Mm-hmm. But I recently had something happen to me that made me stop and pause, which um, we're both in the Washington, D.C. area. So a lot of people in Washington, D.C. go to the Delaware beaches. And so I was at a place called Bethany Beach. And we brought my kids and we were at some late concert on the boardwalk and it's like an Elvis personator. It's actually a lot of people there. It's kind of crazy, but some woman walks up to me and she's like, are you Brian? I go, yeah. And my kids are, you know, dancing. I'm trying to keep an eye on them and not lose them in the crowd. And she's like, Oh, I work at this company and you do talks for our company. And I was like, Oh, it caught me completely off guard. I was like, Oh, she's like, I love your talks. And I was like, Oh, thank you. She walked away. And I was like looking around. I was like, did my kids hear that? Like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> you just got celebrity and, spotting. right? Yeah. There and the all of a sudden for a, a 10 second moment, I've always said, I don't want to be famous. I've always said fame is not something I find appealing, attractive. I've been around famous people. I, I think it for me would do more harm than good. I don't, I don't see the upside. I actually yeah. see a lot of downside here. I am recording a podcast and broadcasting it to the world, but I don't desire to be famous. But for that moment, I I could feel appreciated. I felt seen to your point yeah. earlier. I felt like, wow, I'm valuable. Yeah. And for that minute, I was like, oh, 
yeah, that's probably what's addicting for a politician. That's probably what's addicting right. for an athlete. You're relevant. You are yeah. someone. Or you matter. Something. Yeah. You matter. And and so for you, I'm curious as you think about your identity and how it's evolving. Like, how do you think about feeling like? Is that the dignity piece? Is that the feeling of of like I matter? Or where does that fit in to your framework and how you think about? your role um, yeah. as a writer? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think there's a healthy level of needing to matter that we all have. And I think a lot of struggles that people are having in the modern age have to do with not feeling like they matter, not feeling like they belong, you know, um, because of the way we live now and other reasons. So that's like, a healthy level of wanting and needing to feel like you belong, like you matter. And that's the kind of dignity I think is sort of missing. And we can talk more about that in journalism, a lot of journalism. There's also a kind of needing to matter that's maybe um, trying to fill like a void, you know, from your own past that you'll never fill. And that's to that addictive element you mentioned, right? Like, I think there is a quality where if you're trying to repair like a uh, something that is missing from like deep back in your own history, that you're never going to get enough. Like you can be incredibly famous and still feel you need more, right? And we see that with in narcissists, right? Because we've now gotten weirdly immune to narcissism and will elect narcissists as leaders. Um, but you see it's never enough, right? There's always a craving for more attention, more. So that's unhealthy, right? Um, and I think what I'd like to do, so, so I think the best journalism is low ego, high curiosity journalism that treats people like they matter. So that includes the people you're interviewing, but also your readers or listeners. And so what does that mean? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to do this. I just, on my own podcast, had a Slate uh, editor named Nicole Lewis who had, for the Marshall Project, done. she used to cover um, people who were incarcerated. That was her job. Like, she'd cover criminal justice and other things. Anyway, they ended up doing a survey of 8,000 uh, incarcerated people to get a sense of their political views. It's, like, very, very difficult to do and very unusual. But that's an example of covering a place that doesn't have a lot of hope and not sugarcoating it, right? Not pretending everything is fine in prison, but like treating people in prison like they matter. Dignity. You know? Yeah, dignity. And then in the, in the story itself, a way to show people dignity is, you know, there's uh, the Christian Science Monitor, which is one of the few places that I think has been doing this kind of thing since its founding 100 years ago. They, every story has a little explainer, brief explainer that says why we wrote this, um, which people who study trust in the media are constantly asking news outlets to do, but they rarely do it. Just so you're kind of treating your reader like an intelligent ally. Um, and so you're explaining why. We're, and then it, it's, it forces them. <laughs> the, one of the funny things about the Christian Science Monitor is you can't turn your story in, like in their content management system, until you filled out that that. <laughs> you know, that query, like, why are you writing this? Um, and so it's an important little signal to the reader, like, hey, we value your time and we 
we know that we don't know everything and here's why we thought this was important. Mm. And there, that last piece of like, why does it matter? Why is it important? Might be more valuable than I matter and I'm important. And there's the ego there. And um, as you were talking, I was thinking about my kids and like what messaging I, I share with them. I know you have a son and so parenting, hardest thing I've ever done. I don't know what I'm doing with it, but I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> um, but education, especially over the last couple of years, has been uprooted and a challenge. And there was an article that I read today. Uh, I don't know how factual it is now. Now Amanda's got me thinking <laughs> a lot about it. Like, okay, I need to do more research on research. But I think it was like nine-year-olds and it was looking at oh, yeah. their um, reading levels and math levels and how they've they just did a big study on how we're actually fallen behind during the pandemic. And it made me think about, I am very critical of our education system. And yet like they're doing the best they can, right? Like our teachers, our, 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 our principals, like they're in a really tough situation. And I think one of the lessons learned during the pandemic was that a lot of parents, God bless those that homeschool their kids, but a lot of us are ill-equipped to, teach our kids. Certainly I am ill-equipped to run a school for my, for my children. Um, and so you studied, you know, what is key to, to great education? And I'm curious to get your, your view on great education, what lessons you might've observed or, or seen or, or seen in the research over the last few years. Um, obviously it's been well reported the history of education and how we started and, and, and what, how it's set up. And it's definitely not perfect. But for me, one of the big takeaways of this study is like, but it's better than having our, our parents educate, <laughs> uh, educate our kids. Right. So like, let's give them at least some credit. And, uh. and a lot of these teachers are not making a lot of money and there's a teacher shortage and there's just a whole can of worms that exists within our education system. But I'd love for you to share your perspective on keys to a great education in a pandemic, outside a pandemic, like, what do we do? How do we go forward? How do we have hope when it comes to educating our youth? Yeah, no, you're reminding me um, to be more generous in my own <laughs> assessments of what happened in in the U.S. during the pandemic. Because, you know, when I covered education and went to other countries to try to see, you know, what is the deal here? Like, why is it, there's a handful of countries that are just you know, consistently educating all kids from all backgrounds to very high levels of critical thinking and math, reading, and science. And that wasn't true. You know, like 40 years ago was the U.S. doing that, but really nobody was doing it at that level. Um, and these countries have dramatically changed and gotten much better. So I focused on Finland, Poland, and South Korea. Um, but one of the things that came out of it was like, there's kind of roughly two categories of really high performing education systems. There's ones where trust is low, like South Korea, and to some extent, Poland, where, you know, yeah, they achieve really impressive results, but the kids are having to work just constantly. Like it's like a, almost like a educational sweatshop. So kids go to school all day and then they repeat all those same subjects in after school tutoring because the families don't trust the schools and there's so much pressure on the kids and the families to achieve um, because of the way the university system and other things are set up that it just feels very high stakes and trust is very low. Or you look at Finland and to some extent the Netherlands and Switzerland and other places 
And they're achieving basically the same results as South Korea by every metric that we can find. And we now have a lot of metrics. Um, but the kids are working like half as much, you know, so they're working smart, you know, they're able to have a more humane existence, but it's still really rigorous. So in that case, those are high trust systems. And in those kinds of places, families are, and politicians are more likely to trust the education system, partly because it is trustworthy and because teachers are very highly educated and trained, right? So that's really what you want, right? Are, the, for this. are those teachers compensated differently as well? You know, it's interesting because not always. I mean, teachers in Finland, which is always held up as sort of the holy grail of education for a bunch of reasons, are not making more on average than teachers in the U.S., but it depends on the school. It depends on the state, you know. So there's huge variance in the U.S., like some states, Oklahoma, you know, Mississippi. There's certain states that are paying teachers really low. And where in Washington, D.C., where we live, is paying people, paying teachers really well and has been for 10 years now. So you can make six figures if you're an effective teacher in D.C. public schools in your 20s um, in a low-income school. So... There's a lot of variance within the U.S., which makes it hard. Um, but I will say to that point, what teachers do get in these countries is um, prestige. They're respected. So that's worth a lot, you know. I mean, if you go to a party in, in Finland and you say that you're studying to be a teacher, people are, like, impressed and they want to know more because it's extremely difficult to get into teacher colleges in Finland. And so it's like getting into MIT here, you know. It's just much harder. And so there's a kind of status associated with it. And then once you're there, you spend a full year student teaching with like a really strong teacher. And it's just much more rigorous, serious preparation. And that people know about that. And so like the union in Finland once put a billboard up that said, Finland has the best educated teachers in the world. That's all it said. And so, like, think about what the knock-on effects of that are, right? Because families know, students know, politicians know. So even if they're not making a ton of money, first of all, no one in Finland's making a ton of money, so that's a different sort of <laughs> can of worms. But also, they're respected, and it's taken very seriously. Um, and so students really respond to that, especially high schoolers, right? Like, they, they can tell when you say education is important, but you don't act like it. Um, they're very, they're very sensitive to those signals. So anyway, I'm going on and on, but there, this trust piece I think is really relevant and you can, I mean, it was just excruciatingly obvious during the pandemic. Yeah. But you just sparked something in me that I hadn't thought of is, so there's like I saw I'm in Maryland and, and Westmore was just, who's most likely going to be governor of the state of Maryland. I don't think I'm breaking any news by saying that. Um, who knows, though? We, we were wrong a lot on political uh, polling. Um, not a lot, but sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're talking about, all right, can we make it easier for people to become teachers? Like, can right. we open it up to more people that don't have the same educational background? And so it's interesting. A lot of the solution is actually going in the opposite direction. I know. Please, and then I, Brian, I, it's killing me. Like, I, I'm reading these things and I'm like, oh. And I think about like doctors and lawyers, like I'm Jewish. I grew up in a Jewish house in the Jewish community. I'm not breaking any news either here. It's like, oh, become a doctor or lawyer and, and Jews tend to value education. And right. um, and so like 
it's interesting because why are doctors and lawyers really well respected in our society? Well, they get, they're really well educated. You have to be educated. And then there's a system that is set up that you have to pass the bar. You have to right. do residence. Like there's all this process that usually takes a long, long time. And for those that can't afford it, it leaves them in a lot of debt. And there's once again, a whole different, we could have all different podcasts on that, but it's, <laughs> right. it's not a perfect system. It's not a perfect system, time, right? but the prestige part is the same thing that I felt on the boardwalk when that woman mm. said that to me, I felt right. seen, I felt valuable and someone that gets their JD or, or gets their doctorate, you know, like they post a picture on Facebook and Instagram right. or TikTok or whatever they're doing. They feel seen. We congratulate. And it's an, it's a form of achievement. And so it's driving you crazy, but I never even thought about it. I was like, yeah, that with which is difficult. Uh, professional sports, like all of us, not all of us, a lot of us played sports when we were kids right. and like knew, whoa, like to get to that level, the amount of work that you have to put in, it's, it's, we respect it um, right. to a right. certain extent. So that's got me really thinking about our school system, which is interesting that it's in education. And I'm not suggesting that our teachers aren't well-educated enough, but the prestige component to it is an interesting dynamic. I applied for Teach for America out of college and got rejected um, yeah. and later found out that they accept like 10% of their applicants. And yeah, I'm like yeah. raising my hand ready to go to an inner city school as like a white dude saying, hey, like yeah. send me in, I'm ready to go. And they're like, no, nah, we don't want you. Yeah. But there's something I would be curious about Teach for America and what comes from yeah, that it's... process because it's difficult. I know it's not a perfect system either, but um, oh, it's fascinating. Teach for America is fascinating because it is the most selective of any teacher training program in America um, and has been incredibly controversial. So, you know, unions and a lot of traditional teachers didn't like this idea that you could be plucked out of college and spend, you know, a few months training and then uh, be put into a school because they felt like it chipped away at their sort of, you know, status and like seriousness of their profession, right? Now, it's complicated because Teach for America teachers often outperformed teachers coming from traditional education colleges. Um, so could they have used more training? Absolutely. And Teach for America did get a lot better at coaching their teachers, um, even once they're in the classroom. So you know, it's really tricky, but it was so controversial and really uh, just kind of silly looking back on it. But at the time, you know, they became enemy number one of a lot of teachers unions. And um, now here we are where, you know, you got these governors letting anyone become a teacher, like, um, because they're so desperate. So that is, as you say, headed in the wrong direction. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of complexity to that. But at the end of the day, we know that American teachers are not very well educated in math on average, particularly in elementary school teachers. And so they perform sort of mediocre for the world on math tests, and so do our kids. So math is always where American kids struggle the most. And so some of this is just logical, right? Like if, if you're not comfortable with math, it's going to be hard to teach it well. Um, and so you can have somebody who, you know, struggled in school, went to a kind of a lackluster 
college and, and is an amazing teacher. And we probably all had teachers that we can think of who would fit that category. But on average, if you're going to be an educator, it's a really hard job. And to do it well requires not just a high level of education in math and reading and science, but in classroom management, which most American ed education colleges don't really teach. So you get a lot of teachers just not set up to succeed walking into a classroom with 25, 30 kids and they can't control the classroom. So there's a lot there. We could go on and on, but, um, all, you know, the bottom line is you've got to have trust in these institutions, in journalism, in politics, right. And in referees, right. These institutions without them, everything starts to fall apart. And you saw it with the pandemic where, you know, France, which is a very, you know, quasi-socialist, very left country, schools didn't close during the pandemic, except for like the initial few weeks. And they closed in Washington, D.C. for pretty much a year, and in L.A. and Chicago and Boston. And we're seeing the results. And I think that has to do with trust, with like deep distrust um, for each other, which a lot of has been cultivated by politicians and by our own history with race and other things, but like, ah, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, to see the effects of that on kids' lives. I've always thought like fundamentally, it has a massive impact on how we show up as to whether or not we believe that humans have good intentions or bad intentions. Mm, so true. And like my wife and I, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt and think like, oh, maybe they're just having a bad day or, you know, they didn't mean it that way. Whereas she's like, nope, you got to button up and make sure everything. And look, she's the daughter of a judge and, um, you know, has the legal mind. Uh, well, and she's though... probably right some of the time. And, and you're oh, probably right. Oh, I'm that. wrong a lot. <laughs> oh, I mean, we don't need to talk about how wrong I am. Uh, but I'm wrong a lot when it comes to her. But yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally how do you build trust i always say that like relationships are based off communication trust and respect and um, i don't know how those three play with hope agency and dignity but if one of those is lacking if we lack communication then trust will falter if we lack respect mm. then trust will falter yeah and, respect is dignity yeah yeah like yeah. so dignity it comes from a place of trust yeah uh, it comes from a place of are we communicating with each other and this probably leads to like conflict, which is how do we communicate with each other? How do we respect each other? How do we have empathy? You used the word curiosity earlier. How do we lean into our curiosity so that we're actually open? I love what you said earlier to possibilities and changes and, and opening our mind. But you've got me even wondering, like, what about the American way might work against that? Mm -hmm. And I'll just talk personally. I grew up in a house where conviction was welcome. And so mm -hmm. the dinner table was not a yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Dinner table. It was speak your mind. And if you mm -hmm. got something to say, say it. You know, sometimes you went over the line and, and mom would have to take me to my room and, and say that I should stay there for a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think my parents with me and my two brothers allowed us to speak freely. They did not shut us down. They did not helicopter us. And as a result, we have opinions. Some would say we argue a lot. Um, and I think that's probably true as well. However, I find that when I'm with my brothers, sometimes I lack curiosity and sometimes I get so convicted 
that oh, I right. lose track of my curiosity. And so as you, cause you're trying to win, like yeah, win the argument. Yeah. yeah like sure. I have an opinion sure. and then I'm fighting it. Right. And then I'm like, wait, what's my opinion again? I don't even remember what my opinion <laughs> yeah, is, was, was but I, I believe in it. Right. And right, so right. I'm guilty as charged. And as I went through more psychology programs, I started to value curiosity so, so much. And I started to recognize like, whoa, I can't learn Jack if I'm not curious. And when I'm convicted, while that's needed at times to fight for injustice and to stand up mm -hmm. for what I believe in, a lot of times in my day-to-day -day life, I actually need to lean into curiosity, especially when I'm coaching people. Yeah. Um, so I want to get into conflict. And I, we were talking about America. Is there something in our DNA that keeps us from leaning more towards curiosity that hinders our ability to trust that might exist in, you mentioned France or other places? Is there something in our, in our DNA that you found? Um, because this, to me... I just think it's essential to a lot of the challenges we face is, is a, yeah. a lack of curiosity toward humans and toward totally. Yeah, no, that's, I feel like my main job at this point, if I'm doing journalism is to try to revive curiosity in a time of false simplicity. Right. Um, so I'm totally with you on that. And I think for the U S I mean, I will say like, you know, I spent a few years just trying to understand conflict and, it, it turns out conflict is not the problem, right? Like we need conflict in a marriage, in an organization, on a team to get stronger, to be heard, to challenge each other, to be pushed. It's kind of like, you know, tension when you're putting your body under stress to get stronger. And there's a good way to do that. And there's a bad way to do that that leads to lasting harm, right? So uh, conflict isn't the problem. The problem is something called high conflict, which is sometimes called intractable conflict or malignant conflict in the research. But that's the kind of conflict where, you know, it's escalated to a point where there's an us and a them. It's all about winning. Um, people make a lot of mistakes more than they normally do. And it becomes conflict for conflict's sake. And the most diabolical thing about high conflict is that everybody suffers to different degrees, but especially kids, you know, whether it's a high conflict divorce or a high conflict uh, you know, politics again and again and again, that's the pattern is like the thing you went into the fight to protect, you end up harming, you know, whether it's your country or family or religion, whatever. So it's a really sticky mess to get out of high conflict. Um, and, and then to answer your question about it, the U S well, there's four kind of tripwires that tend to lead to high conflict in all the places I went to and all the conflicts I studied. And one of them is the presence of strong binary group identities. So just how humans have evolved when we get into groups like that, it can get ugly fast in conflict, and especially when there's moral superiority assigned to one group or another. So because of our history with race, we have this very deep binary conflict, black and white, right? But we also have it in our politics because we're one of the very few, you know, democracies that has a winner-take-all system. Where there's just two parties. So if you win, I lose. It's a zero-sum game. That's terrible. Like, that is not how you would design any human, any, like, organization of humans if you wanted them to do hard things. So that's a problem, <laughs> those binary group identities. But also corruption is, is a condition for high conflict. So when systems are not doing what they're supposed to do. Now, we, we are not as bad as some countries on this, but we are not great right? Um, like, depending on where you live, the criminal justice system can't always be trusted. 
Um, certainly the level of income inequality here, um, lots of things are, are kind of rigged in favor of the affluent. Um, so that's a piece of it, but also uh, conflict entrepreneurs. So if you have systems that kind of raise up people who exploit conflict for their own ends, that's usually a way to get into high conflict. And so there's, and then the fourth one is humiliation. So anytime you have systems and traditions that humiliate people, that's going to be more likely to end up in high conflict. But um, I don't think, I mean, it's hard. The U.S. is such a complicated place, um, but in addition to our racial history, it's a very individualistic place. So I think that matters, right? And that you mentioned, like, you know, the rule of good intentions, giving people the benefit of the doubt is harder in a more diverse place, but also in a very individualistic capitalist place, hyper-capitalist place. Um, and then at the same time, you know, we have a lot of strengths when it comes to conflict. Like we are much more than other countries have spent time in uh, nonconformists, right? And we do speak our mind <laughs> compared to a lot of other cultures. And people can disagree, and that's healthy conflict. It can be, right? And we need that. Like, you do, what you don't want is just suppress or avoid all conflict. And we definitely don't have that problem right now. It's interesting when you talk about binary. The other place is sports. Like, it's win and lose, and sometimes a draw or tie. But yeah. you know, you you pin two teams against each other. And I've always been obsessed with the word compete because in sports, and I know you coach soccer, so you you know what this is like. The word compete which I think is a beautiful word and I think is needed and helpful and healthy to your point. Same with confrontation. I think confrontation is needed and healthy. And if you bury that, it leads to much bigger issues, but the word compete, the origins are competere Latin, which means to strive with. And I actually think American culture has been seen as individualistic, but I would love to do a study on that because if you really study what we are, we are tribal, we are communal, we are, we like when bad things happen, you know, after 9 11, you mm. see us like a lot of times, not all the times, like we, we actually are very like um, team oriented in a lot of ways. Mm. Our businesses, I think one of the reasons our businesses do so well is the collaboration that exists within a lot of organizations. I don't think that story always gets told. I think we talk about the Elon Musk or the Mark Zuckerberg right. or the jobs, but you know, it's like Edison had a team of over 30 people collaborating on the light bulb, but we talk about Edison. So I actually think hmm. we actually have team all over us. And yeah. I think, I think that's a, that's a whole nother story, but it's interesting when I hear zero sum, I think of two negotiation experts that we've had on the podcast, Ron Shapiro, uh, who's worked in sports as a sports agent has written a bunch of books on, on negotiation and Bob Bourdon, who's a professor at Harvard. And, and both of them are very clear that the Donald Trump way of negotiation <laughs> is not the way to go. Um, and that it, it, you, you want win-win like win-win right. is sustainable. Whereas right. win lose is not sustainable. And so when they coach and consult organizations on negotiation, they're always saying, if you just try to, you know, crush your opponent they're never going to do business with you again and then right. you just you just ruined a potential relationship and so they talk about the power of you know having good conflict and trying to have empathy and understanding what the other person's needs are and then a great negotiator is going to get them everything they need and oh by the way also take care of themselves and so when i heard zero sum i thought of bob and i thought of ron um, because i think there are people 
that study conflict. And if you listen to them, they will tell you, no, 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 good conflict looks way different than what you're, what you're describing yeah. as high I mean, conflict. you think about like, isn't it wild that anyone who has taken a negotiation class in American business schools knows that what partisans are doing on social media and in Congress is totally opposite of totally. everything we know actually you should do if you want to get over the long term, right? A sustainable deal. And Obama, um, when he finished up his presidency, he did this amazing interview where he's very open and honest. He said, you know, like I probably needed to do a better job, you know, listening to the other side and listening to their perspective. And I was so gung ho on healthcare that sometimes I might've lost my way, which is super self-reflective for a president to be able to, to say, um, which I want more of that, like humility and more of that honesty, which by the way, is the key to great leadership and organizations. Like it, we, it, the truth is a great leader in an organization has great humility. They yeah. do listen. We know this, like this is right. study. I know it's crazy. It's like alternate realities, right? It's yeah. And you're right. American businesses on, on average are very strong on a lot of these things. And so why don't we see that in our politics? I mean, I think the way politics work today in America, it's just almost would, would require like superhuman emotion regulation to get through a campaign and not want to crush the other side. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just very hard in a binary system like that. Um, and we know that countries that have this kind of two-party winner-take-all system have are more polarized. Um, so in, there's a great study that had ex like Americans just kind of try a different system that's more like proportional representation um, where there's multiple parties and so forth. And they were less likely to hate their opponent afterward, even if their guy didn't win. And they were more trusting. And all these things, like, get better if there's more than two choices. Like, it's just, um, you know, which I think suggests that, you know, it's not impossible to fix this system that we've got. I mean, a bunch of places are experimenting with ranked choice voting now. There's other efforts to get to a more proportional representation. It's not that hard. I mean, is it hard? Yes. But it's not impossible. But I think we could, just like we talked about journalism at the top of the hour, we could redesign politics for human psychology. It's so interesting. Andrew Yang starts his movement and is trying to do it. We see Ross Perot for years. And when they come up, <laughs> anyone that I talk to that knows anything about this stuff, which I don't claim to know, they're like, no chance. Like, yeah, it's right. impossible. Like, <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, wouldn't this be like the time where this might be possible? Like, wouldn't right. this? Wouldn't it feels this, like this is the moment. Right? Like, no offense to the last two presidents, but I don't think they represent at this stage in their lives most of our country. And I don't know, maybe we could do better. And maybe there's somebody who's not old as shit that could, <laughs> could like come in and be really smart and represent Right, right. Most right now, there's country. no exit ramp. Like you, if you're a Republican who doesn't like, you know, the way Trump treats people and some of these policies that are very extreme and divisive, you got nowhere to go. You know, and if you're a Democrat who, you know, likewise, maybe isn't really moved by Joe Biden, you got nowhere to go. And that's just crazy in a country this size, right, with this much talent and potential and, you know, um, energy. I mean, it just doesn't, again, doesn't have to be this way, which, I mean, 
there's a guy, Lee Drutman, who wrote a book about this, um, that he lives in my neighborhood, uh, not too far from you. And every once in a while we go on a walk and I find it so reassuring because it's like, he is actually working on trying to reform our democracy so that there are more parties, so that people have more choices. You know, with ranked choice voting, you, you, you vote for like four candidates, your top four. So if your first guy doesn't get enough votes, then the woman you picked as number two rises to the top. And so it has this effect it did with the New York City mayoral election. It's not perfect, right? But it did when they used it in New York City recently, where the candidates were much less likely to go negative because they wanted to be your number two, <laughs> you know, even if they weren't going to be number one. So they didn't want to, you know, degrade, demean and demonize a whole bunch of voters uh, who weren't going to vote for them at, at number one. And, and I want to stay on this and get your perspective. So when January 6th happened, you know, we're both in the area. My I'm a fighter by nature. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to go down there and defend my city. Like that's I'm a Washingtonian. Like that's my crazy mindset. Thankfully, I've got kids and, and a wife who say, yeah, that's probably not a good idea, Brian. Uh, and I'm not big and strong and, and qualified to handle that situation. So I'm glad I did not go. However, like I've had people Me on too. the podcast and I've had friends who right after that happened are saying, you know, they're not doing anything wrong. They're patriots. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're standing up for our country. And one of the people has a big social media platform. And, you know, I, I thought about, I'm like, do I reach out to them? Do I, you know, have a conversation with them? And then my wife, once again, we're very different. She's like, no, why would you entertain that? <laughs> I'm like, well, I, I kind of want to get their perspective because I just don't yeah. understand it. And, Sure enough, like a week later, I shot him a text and I'm like, yeah, I'm just curious of your perspective. I don't really see it like you see it, but I'd love to know. He's like, oh, you should come on Instagram live with me and we can debate. And I'm like, no, that doesn't sound very appealing to me. <laughs> but he actually was like very appreciative. He's like, look, oh. thank you for this. I've had many family and friends reach out and say like, They're, you're dead to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so like one of the things I learned from Megan Phelps Roper, who's come on the podcast who is part of the Westboro Baptist church right. who's just a brilliant young young she's a brilliant woman yeah. and uh she left the Westboro Baptist church and the reason she left the Westboro Baptist church was not because people were spitting on her and calling her all kinds of bad right. names it's because people engaged with her and tried to listen to her on and, Twitter and, of all on places. Twitter yeah. and and so she like she changed my perspective it's like we need to lean into people that we disagree yeah. with but it takes a toll so for you it having does, studied yeah. all this stuff how are you at leaning into conversations that make you uncomfortable or that you disagree with? Are you, do you find yourself having more capacity to do it or have you gotten better at it? And if so, I'd, I'd love to learn more about it. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely gotten better at it. I think about it very differently. Like I thought, you know, you did exactly the right thing and not wanting to debate it on Instagram live. Like the first thing is always remove the audience. Like don't have this argument in front of, even, you know, your family at dinner, at Thanksgiving dinner, remove the audience. Because you remember I mentioned humiliation as one of the tripwires for high conflict? So I could say something to you that feels humiliating to you. And maybe, maybe I don't even mean it that way. But once you humiliate your opponent, there's a great Nelson Mandela quote where he says, there's no one more dangerous than one who's been humiliated, even when you humiliate him rightly. Um, and so now if somebody comes at me on Twitter or whatever, the first thing I do, especially if they seem like they're like, it, it's in good faith, you know, like they're not attacking me in sort of atrocious language and they really seem to earnestly disagree. 
the first thing I do is DM them. So I take away the audience, right? Because I, I am trying to learn from what, how they see the world, just like you are with the person you knew who you disagreed with. Like, I know that there's something I'm missing here. I'm not going to change my mind, right? But I'm curious about what that is. And then ideally, if you know them, you want to get on the phone. So phone's just always going to be better than text. Um, and then the first thing you got to do is listen to them. And it's really hard to do, but it's like a game of chicken. So half of what people want in conflict is to be heard. And then they can let a lot of things go. But who's going to listen first, right? So I've done now a lot of training and I teach uh, active listening in a form that is called looping to journalists and other people. And I've just got a lot better at that. And that's probably been the thing I'm most proud of in the last like 10 years professionally and personally is getting better at listening because there was a study by Graham Bodie who did this research on listening. He found that people feel heard about 11% of the time. <laughs> that's not a lot, right? So if you can help people feel heard, then the next thing they say will be much more nuanced, vulnerable, true, less extreme. And that's when you get to the good stuff. Like what is really going, but they need to feel heard first. So even on Twitter, um, if I'm DM DMing someone, the first thing I'll do is be like, wow, it sounds like you feel like I really got this wrong and I'm missing this, this, and this. And is that right? What else? And is amazing every time. It just lowers the person's guard. They maybe didn't even think I was going to respond, but you've, you've, you've shown them you're trying to understand them, right? Which isn't the same as agreeing. When I got into psychology and I went to grad school for it, we would, we would practice that all the time. Hey, yeah. let them know you're listening and you'd share it. And it also allows them to clarify. So when I got into psychology, I called my uncle Bob, my uncle Bob's a, a psychotherapist and I said, Uncle Bob, I'm kind of curious about this. Like, we're learning all about having empathy and being curious and listening and sort of leaning back. And when I think of you, I don't think of those things. I love you dearly. <laughs> but, but Uncle Bob, like, you, you see, you can be presumptuous and uh -huh. you're intense and uh -huh. like all this. I go, how does that work when someone's seeing you? And he's like, well, Brian, here's the thing. So they come in my office and they explain everything and he'll say, okay, so it sounds like X, Y, and Z, this is going on. It's your dad impacted you this way, da, 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 da. And the person will be like, wow, yeah, I think that's spot on. Or the person will be like, no way, you're way off. He's like, great, let's find out a different path. And, huh. and so it also allows us to clarify and yeah. allows us to understand when we don't hear it correctly, right. it gives them permission to correct and to yes. course correct which yes. is another underrated element of it. It's like, no, 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 you are not hearing me right. Let me try to reframe it so that you hear me. And by the way, cool, like that happens all the time where we misunderstand totally. things. And right. and so clarifying is so, so key. And, and that's what you're talking about with looping is making sure that, that we feel heard. And my Uncle Bob, if he listens, I still love you. But it, it is, it's another way to go about doing it and finding your own way to your point. It doesn't have to be woo-woo-y. It doesn't have to be no. always soft. It can be like, hey, let me make sure I understood you. You yeah. said X, Y, and Z. Did I hear yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, Did you yeah. intend that? Was that the intention <laughs> behind what you said? And they'll yeah. be like, no, 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 no. You heard me way wrong. Like I was thinking something. Right, because so often we don't even know the answer. Like we're trying to articulate it and it's an iterative process. If it's a hard complicated emotional question, we're not going to nail it on the first attempt. 
And to your point, Chris Voss, the former FBI negotiator, he has a great quote where he's like, he does this thing, he calls it tactical listening because it sounds more manly that way. And so he says, you know, <laughs> if you do this, I'm, I'm helping the other person hear what they are saying to see if it makes sense to them. Yeah, that's you know? it. And a friend of mine, I was out with a colleague and friend last night at dinner and I was talking about something and, and, and he was like, so wait, so you think X, Y, Z, is that right? And I was like, oh my God, that's, that's bananas. But yeah, that is what I said. <laughs> but it's like, he just needed to play it back to me for me to see the kind of assumption I'd made that didn't make sense. And it was, it was awesome because he helped me not just, he, he was trying to understand me and it helped me understand myself. Well, and our friend, the reason we're having this conversation, David Epstein has a wonderful video at the Sloan conference, uh, the MIT Sloan conference with Malcolm Gladwell, where David suggests that they take each other's point of view and they start their disagreement on having generalist versus specialist uh, mm -hmm. views. And so David shares Malcolm's perspective and then Malcolm shares David's perspective and then they can have a common conversation to make sure mm -hmm. that they are understanding each oh, other. That's cool. I've never seen that. I have to look that up. Yeah, I'll send it to you. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool video. Um, I can't let you go without sharing the story that you witnessed with the New York City Synagogue. And um, so I'd love to maybe wrap there. It's also um, in your book, High Conflict. So we're giving away part of the book in the podcast, but hopefully in this new journalism world, as I, as I was thinking about us talking about, you know, prestige and making sure that you have systems in place like we're podcasting and i don't know about you but i have no education in podcasting uh you've got a wonderful podcast on slate i don't know if you went to school for podcasting definitely not and so it is interesting as we live in this world where anyone can fire up a mic anyone yeah. can have a <laughs> newsletter anyone can have you know a social media handle and, and put information out there is this push pull that's so interesting where there's beauty in the autonomy and the freedom that comes with our ability to get voices out into the world and the internet and spread them. And there's also this danger to it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I was thinking about that earlier. I was like, that's kind of relevant. It's kind of funny that we're saying that as we funny, have right. this conversation, you know, between two people, but um, I'd love for you to go into. Thank God we're not charged with teaching children. <laughs> yeah. And, this and, podcast. and thank God I didn't get the teach for America job and stay in our school <laughs> system. That would have been a disaster for every student that came across my, my desk. But um, yeah, the synagogue and, and, and what you witnessed there and experienced. Uh, and once again, I recommend people check out Amanda's book and, and her podcast, and we'll have all that information in the show notes as well. Yeah. So um, this was a really incredible story that isn't all that unusual, but um, is maybe underappreciated right now. But it's a story about a synagogue in New York City that was sort of a mega synagogue, very influential old synagogue called B'nai Jeshurun on the Upper West Side. And, you know, about eight years ago or so, they just started to come undone. There were just a lot of internal conflict over Israel. And the rabbis said one thing, and a lot of the congregants were much more conservative. And it just erupted. It exploded very publicly on the pages, front page of the New York Times, where people were, you know, accusing uh, each other of terrible dis disloyalty to Israel and calling each other names. And so it was public, right, where you get that humiliation piece that we talked about, which is so toxic. And, you know, people were leaving the synagogue who had been there for generations, withdrawing their donations. It was just a mess. 
And so the rabbis responded by doing what we all do in this kind of sudden explosive conflict, which was they hoped it would go away, you know, so they apologized and tried to move on. But then, of course, doesn't go away. It never does. It goes underground and ferments there. And so it came up again. And it was just threatening to destroy the place. So a congregant urged the rabbis to bring in some conflict mediators uh, from an organization called Resetting the Table, which had worked in the Middle East. And they came and decided to just change the whole culture about how this, this organization dealt with conflict with each other, right? So they had all these like listening sessions to our point where we talked about like, what is it you really, like, how did you come to how you feel about Israel? Like, what were you told as a kid about Israel, you know? And they told each other stories in their living rooms and it was difficult. It was grueling. It was like training for a, you know, triathlon. It wasn't like fun, you know, (laughs) but they started to see that there really weren't just two camps. There really were more than two on Israel and there was a lot of internal complexity and people felt unsure about a lot of things. And slowly, 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 they started to figure out what mattered most to them and what they could let go of. And so then, eventually, more conflict, as always happens, this, this time over interfaith marriage came up, and they already had these rituals, right, for good conflict to figure it out and talk to each other and disagree, but without, like, destroying each other. Then the 2016 election happens, and most of the congregation had voted for Hillary Clinton, and there were just, there was deep despair. Um, the, most of the congregants were not fans of Donald Trump, and yet they didn't know anyone with whom they could have these conversations, which is what's so dangerous about a segregated country like we've got politically and racially and other, other kinds of segregation. So they ended up, through a variety of weird coincidences, um, being invited to do a three-day exchange with a group of Christian conservative rural uh, corrections officers who work in prisons in Michigan. <laughs> so they knew someone who knew them and whatever. So they decided, you know what? We've leaned into conflict before. We know that as difficult as it is, we always learn something we didn't know. And that's kind of who we want to be. So they now had an identity around this. So off they go. And it was, by the way, not an easy decision. <laughs> Many of them could not sleep the night before. They were very frightened of each other in both directions. But they end up going to Michigan, staying in the homes of the corrections officers and their families. And I went along for the rides, also stayed in the homes. And and then they would have like these hard conversations about immigration, about Trump, about guns. And then they would have ice cream and then they would go to dinner and then they would tour a prison museum and then they would have hard conversations. And it was incredible to see like this, this, you know, affection that very quickly developed between these two very different groups. And they disagreed on really big things. And then they learned a bunch of things that they didn't disagree on, that they thought they did. And most of all, they just really enjoyed the experience. So it was very strange because it was just so different from what you see, what you expect, right? I mean, they actually ended my book with a quote from one of the women who had come from New York who said, you know, I wish I could always be the way I felt on this exchange. You know, I felt curious, open, honest, and alive. And you don't feel that way, right, when you're hunkered down in high conflict. And they ended up, the New Yorkers reciprocated that summer. The Michigan folks came out to New York City, and they were afraid of New York City, which was really interesting, too. You know, like, these people who work in prisons, right, were very, a lot of them were really freaked out about coming to New York because they had been sort of 
indoctrinated to believe it was just like some kind of hellscape, you know, and they were amazed at how safe and clean it was. Um, but they had more hard conversations and toured the 9-11 museum and uh, did other things. But it was an, it was really cool to see because, it, you know, I still am in touch with, with some of these uh, on both sides of this divide. And uh, it, it just shows you how it's regular Americans are able to do this. You know, it's, it's, we've kind of been turned on each other and made to fear each other by um, politicians, sometimes journalists, pundits. And it's really kind of heartbreaking. Give us some hope. What, what, what are you? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, if these people can do this, right. I mean, I will say there was something weirdly addictive about it, like weirdly euphoric. Like once you experience that and people who work in conflict zones say this all the time, but I had never witnessed it like this. Once you experience people having honest, hard conversations across a big divide like that, but with some like dignity and decency, you actually want more of it. So that's really encouraging, you know? Um, And I think a a majority of Americans are just exhausted by the conflict and really do want something different and don't like feeling this huge, seemingly huge gap between neighbors and family members. So um, the first step is to recognize who are the conflict entrepreneurs who are really exploiting this conflict we're in and trying to distance yourself from them and remove them from your newsfeed and, you know, realize that you're being manipulated. It's interesting because just today I was talking to a client and there's this great video of this rabbi from New York who talks about how lobsters grow. It's like, it went viral. It's like this awesome video. Hmm. And he says, you know, lobsters grow, you know, they, they have a shell and then they start growing and their shell becomes very uncomfortable. And so they shed the shell and they hide under a rock um, to keep themselves from predators. And while they're hiding, another shell grows back and starts to fit their, their new body. And then they grow out of that shell and cause they get uncomfortable and then they shed the shell when they feel discomfort and they go hide and they grow a new shell. And his whole thing is we have to go through discomfort if we want to grow. And that, that path is really healthy for us to continue to grow and evolve ourselves. And so I'm here thinking like, all right, optimistically, maybe we have to go through some of these hard times from a political standpoint to actually create something different and innovative. And Americans are really good at innovating and we see it in a lot of different aspects of our society. And perhaps this is a time where we're going to innovate because people are uncomfortable. And I think when we mute or numb that discomfort, Mm. we limit our potential for growth. And so I I'll sit here with some optimism to say like, gosh, I don't know about anyone else, but the last few years for me, I've been an awakening to think about what I can do and how Mm. I can help. And there's different ways that I've been exploring, you know, one of which was a retreat that you were invited to. And I think sometimes we forget that, action usually i mean you mentioned mandela like why does mandela become mandela unfortunately going through extreme pain right and uh 
it, it does help us. I don't think we always have to go through pain to grow. And I'm not one of these like running an ultra marathon guys and cold plunge. Like I think I can grow without physical pain, but I do think we have to feel some emotional pain, some mental pain if we want to actually move and adjust and change. And that's why I think good conflict is so important because it allows us to step into elements and allows ourselves to evolve and grow and see new possibilities, which is a really beautiful thing. Absolutely. Amen. I totally agree. And I just don't think, I mean, right now, roughly something like a hundred million Americans are actively avoiding contact with the news. Like that's a huge market. And in this country, a market like that doesn't go unmet forever. Right. Um, so, so Amanda, I am, I am so Amanda is launching yeah. a new market that's going to serve those <laughs> 100, million. 100 million people. And, <laughs> and I will do everything I can to help her do you it. No, it but we will break that news if it does happen. But <laughs> Amanda, this has been this has been a blast. Um, I love chatting with you. You have a way about you that is always thoughtful, but curious. It's always uh, you don't just stay curious. You also share what the research says and what your beliefs are and and that to me is just a, a potent combination and I appreciate your work and, and keep it up and it does matter and, and you matter. And I'll put that out there as well. And if people want to learn more about what you're up to and, and follow the podcast and check out the books, where's the best place for them to do that? Well, the book is called High Conflict. You can find it anywhere. My website's amandaripley.com and the podcast is called How To, How To exclamation mark. Um, and it's through Slate. And we always like to ask our listeners to bring us problems that they're having and we bring on experts to help them solve those problems. So, um, that's a little plug for, you know, people to reach out to us with their problems. And how about social media? Where can people find you? Oh, at Amanda Ripley on Twitter. Beautiful. I'm at Brian Levinson on Twitter. LinkedIn's the other place I like to play. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Amanda, I'll see you soon in DC. Um, Enjoy the weather as we head into fall, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What teachers do get in these countries is um, prestige. They're respected. So that's worth a lot, you know. I mean, if you go to a party in, in Finland and you say that you're studying to be a teacher, people are, like, impressed, and they want to know more because it's extremely difficult to get into teacher colleges in Finland. And so it's like getting into MIT here, you know, it's just much harder. And so there's a kind of status associated with it. And then once you're there, you spend a full year student teaching with like a really strong teacher. And it's just much more rigorous, serious preparation. And that people know about that. And so like the union in Finland once put a billboard up that said, Finland has the best educated teachers in the world. 